0: The following is a Westminster Seminary, California, morning devotion by the Reverend Chuck Tedrick, Dean of Students at Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this chapel message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474, wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is wonderful to see you again. Uh, Please stand, if you are able, as we pray this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have, again, to open your word and to hear from you and your word. And we know that it never returns void. And we ask that your word would accomplish all that you have set out for it to accomplish in our lives. To comfort us, to assure us, to promise us, to renew us, to sanctify us, to correct us, to train us, whatever you've sent out for it to accomplish in our lives, we pray that it would indeed accomplish that. We pray that we would be moldable and malleable in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please be seated. And turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, we want to consider... Two prayers today, really a prideful prayer and a humble prayer that come to us from Jesus as he's telling a parable about prayers, really. In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, we hear these words It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So far the reading of God's holy word. Note at the very beginning, again, to whom Jesus is speaking. He says that this parable is told to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt so it's really told to the self-righteous and to the contemptuous that he's speaking here and this really if we want to say something about these prayers is one of the best prayers in scriptures and one of the worst prayers in scriptures here there are two types of sinners in the world that are reflected in the two men who went up to the temple to pray there are those who look to God's grace and mercy in Christ alone for salvation, in other words, the humble, and those who look to themselves, in other words, away from God and away from Christ for salvation. They're looking to themselves, the prideful. And know that the two men went up into the temple to pray. They're ostensibly going and doing the same things. It's the most sacred location in all of Israel in the temple and they're on their way up the hill and at the end of the parable they're on their way down they're coming up for something and they leave with something but they leave with different destinies different pardons different places in God's kingdom there were two daily services in the temple the sacrifices were commonalities around them think of everything that they could see and hear and smell even as they're going up to the temple blood, sacrifices, there was the buying and selling of things we know going on at that time as well, and everything audio and visually that they're experiencing. They're going to the same temple, the same synagogue, the same church, if you will. They're going to the same service, but they're standing apart. They're doing the same things, but they're doing them for different reasons and from different heart conditions. We want to look at three things this morning briefly. First, a prideful prayer Second, a humble prayer. And third, a profound pronouncement. A prideful prayer, a humble prayer, and a profound pronouncement. First, a prideful prayer, which is really from the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were known as being very religious and very pious. They were religiously conservative. They were scrupulous. They have a bad name in our day, in particular because of how the scriptures often paint them. But um, they were very zealous for the Lord, for the word of the Lord, for doing right things uh, in some sense. So it's not necessarily that in and of themselves they have the same idea of Pharisaism that that we would have. There's something about their wanting to do the law, which in some sense is admirable. But this Pharisee was standing by himself and he prayed. And he said, God, I thank you. Which indeed is a great start to a prayer. (laughs) As a matter of fact, it would be a great start to all of our prayers, but his prayer goes downhill from there. For what does he thank God? Does he thank God for his grace and his love and his mercy and his majesty and his holiness and his creation, for the sunrise, for the sunset, for food, for shelter, for the temple itself, for his word, for his faithfulness, for his abiding presence? No, he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I submit to you that's one of the world's worst prayers. Unless we throw too many stones at this brother, whether we say those words or not, we often think or feel these things too sometimes, don't we? And then notice that he lists sins in which he has not participated. Thus thinking of himself as holy or blameless or different or better than someone else because he hasn't done these particular things. I thank you that I'm not an extortioner. I thank you that I'm not a robber or a swindler, the violation of the Eighth Commandment. I thank you that I'm not unjust, things that fall short of what God requires. thank you that I'm not an adulterer or immoral. I haven't violated the Seventh Commandment. And so he moves from these general and specific things to even say that he thanks God that I'm not like that person, the tax collector, someone else in the covenant community that's standing just not too far from him, I thank you that I am not like him. Can you imagine that poor sap? He comes into the temple to pray, to find reconciliation, to find peace with God, some sense as well, and here another covenant member is looking at him and saying, I thank you that I am not like him. having offered his self-justification for his standing before God because of what he has avoided, he also, the Pharisee, puts forward his positive works of righteousness. He says, not only have I not done these things, but I have done these things. I have kept your law, in other words. He offers positive works of righteousness before God. He says, I have fasted twice a week. And beloved, this is more than the law required. He's saying, I'm going beyond the law. There wasn't a requirement in the Torah that they were supposed to fast twice a week. And he said, I give tithes of all that I get, which was more than the law required as well. So he's really in his prayer saying, I thank you that I'm not like all of these people and I haven't done these things, but also look at all the things that I have done. Look at what a good boy I am. Earlier in Luke, Luke had said, woe to you Pharisees. For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. There's some good stuff here, right? We too are to be honest. We are to avoid immorality. We're to be faithful and to be just. But not that the Pharisee only picked the things that he had obeyed. What about coveting? What about gossip? What about complaining? What about envy? What about impatience? What about self-righteousness? What about hatred in his heart? It seemed like he just had a short list of things that he thought that he had obeyed well. Sin is deceptive like that, isn't it? We often choose what we obey and forget the rest. It's much deeper than acts. It's a wicked heart. We often measure ourselves by standards that we can keep or we measure ourselves by our intentions but others by their actions. In effect, his prayer is saying, I thank you, God, that I am such a great guy. Pride permeates his entire prayer. Note how it's just rife with the word I, 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 I. He's really worshiping the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I, rather than Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, isn't he? He feels like he's gone beyond the call of duty. God should be impressed with him. Look at all that I've, I've done, and look at what I'm avoiding And such an attitude is offensive to Jesus. Such an attitude is offensive to a holy God. And such an attitude is uh, offensive or distasteful to our fellow human beings, isn't it? To have that kind of haughtiness or lack of self-awareness or contempt for your fellow human beings made in the image of God or fellow covenant community members. Recall the audience that Jesus says he's addressing in this parable. The parable is told to someone or some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. In other words, he's really a failure in terms of both tables of the law. Those who trust in themselves that they were righteous really don't have faith. They're self-righteous rather than those who are looking to the Lord in faith. Abraham was justified by faith, not by works of the law. And here is someone who's seeking to justify himself by works of the law. He's got a failure of the first table, to love the Lord as God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, to look to him in faith. But he also treated others with contempt, so he also doesn't love his neighbor. His closest neighbor is a covenant member. He's failed in his love towards God, and he's failed in his love towards others, and he thinks he's doing well. He has a rejection and disdain for others. He thinks that they are beneath him or below them. Out of the mouth, we know what is in the heart. God is never impressed, beloved, merely with external religion, is he? The Pharisee compared himself to others, and he thought that he was doing well. The tax collector compared himself to a holy God and knew that he was unwell. That's really one of the cruxes or the main things that we want to take away from the passage is that the Pharisee compared himself to others and he thought that he was doing fairly well. I'm not like these people. I'm not like these guys or this guy. But the tax collector didn't compare himself to his covenant members. He compared himself to the Lord of the covenant and found, I am unwell. I need help. I need a rescue. I need salvation. And beloved, what the Pharisee said about himself was true. True. The tragedy here is not that the Pharisee was not far aloft along on the road of doing those things, but that he was on the wrong road. Because he thought it was through doing those things or not doing those things that he would have peace with God or be right with God or have a good relationship with him. But it's not through those things. It's through abandoning them. It's through abandoning our good works. It's through abandoning our self-righteousness. It's through abandoning ourselves and fleeing and clinging to Christ alone. Augustine said this in a sermon on this passage. He said, The Pharisee was not rejoicing so much in his own clean bill of health as comparing it with the disease of others. He came to the doctor. It would have been more worthwhile to inform him by confession of the things that were wrong with himself instead of keeping his wounds secret and having the nerve to crow over the scars of others. It is not surprising that the tax collector went away cured since he had not been ashamed of showing where he felt pain. Next, we want to look at a humble prayer, the tax collector. The tax collector was one of the most hated professions, unlike today where we have so much respect for the IRS and our leaders. They were allowed to collect a certain amount, but then they were also allowed to add more to that. They were given to excess and given to greediness and unfairness. And they're often associated with the most depraved or despised classes of society, the harlots, the drunkards, the gluttons, those who commit those kinds of sins, not the kind that I do, my respectable sins. They were seen as being in a different class, harlots, drunkards, or gluttons, the very people for whom Jesus came to save, right? There's a clear contrast in the text. It says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying. Here's someone who's aware, wholeheartedly, viscerally, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically, that he is not well and that he needs help. And he prays this simple prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We could even translate it in the Greek with a definite article there, God be merciful to me, the sinner. He's recognizing something about himself. Note that he doesn't have self-confidence, but confidence in God. This prayer isn't about himself, it's about the Lord. He recognizes he's a sinner. God be merciful to me. He's acting, he's looking upon God to act. Whereas the Pharisee was showing all the actions that he had done, The tax collector is looking for God to do something. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He doesn't make any comparisons to others. Brothers and sisters, we are more like one another than we are like our Savior Jesus. We are leveled at the foot of the cross. Hopefully in our hearts and in our churches and in our ministries and in the opportunities that the Lord gives us that we have the aroma of those who have been touched by mercy and touched by grace where there isn't a contemptuous attitude where we feel of ourselves or think of ourselves better than other people individually or other classes or other groups of people in any way. He recognizes that he needs mercy. He indeed does need mercy. Both of them do. Both of them were wrong. Both of them are leveled by the law. Both of them have nothing in the face of a holy God to offer on themselves. So we don't want to say, hey, this guy isn't as bad as he thinks he is. He is. But he knows he is. And he goes and he seeks mercy and he seeks forgiveness, unlike the tax collector who is in just as wretched state, if not more maybe in some sense, but doesn't recognize it. I'm sorry, the Pharisee. And what he wants is mercy. And he asks for a very specific kind of mercy, The word there is the one from which we get propitiation. He wants propitiation. He wants something or someone to turn away the wrath of God, the condemnation, the just deserts of the law that lay on him and he wants a substitute, a sacrifice. Remember again where he's standing and the sights and the smells and the sounds of being in the temple that he had seen and known from his youth most likely. Was he familiar with Psalm 51, which Diego played for us as a prelude? God, be merciful to me. On thy grace I rest my plea. Knowing these, knowing that these aren't just general things that are out there, but that they apply to him. He wants that kind of mercy. He wants an atonement. He wants a substitute. He wants a sacrifice. Was he thinking of the day of atonement where there's a sin offering and a scapegoat? where his sins are imputed to another and one takes his sins far from him, pointing forward, of course, to Jesus. Someone to satisfy and turn away the wrath of God that rightly laid on him. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Reminds us of the Apostle Paul saying that he's the chief of all sinners, that kind of humility, that kind of recognition of we're all leveled before a holy God. We're all leveled at the foot of the cross. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is, is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a what for us, beloved? Does anybody know? A propitiation. To be a propitiation for our sins, the one who turns aside by satisfying the wrath of God in himself for us. And so the parable concludes with a profound pronouncement, doesn't it? The cry for mercy is immediately answered. Isn't that the way with our Lord? But those who cry to the, out to the Lord and those who call out to him in mercy, they receive it. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. We could even make it stronger with the original language as well. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified, not the other. One of them went away reconciled to God, having peace with God being justified, being made right, sins forgiven, sins atoned for, and a positive credit of righteousness given to them by the works and merit of another, not by their own self-righteousness, but by Christ's righteousness for them. Jesus is on his way to his cross to do just that. It was through faith. It was through trust. It was through calling out in mercy, not through self-righteousness or pride or comparing himself to others, but coming humbly before the Lord recognizing his need and recognizing his provision and his mercy and his grace one was completely accepted the other one not at all there are no half measures with God there are no half measures with Jesus it's a reversal of expectations but this is the way the kingdom works isn't it everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted Sin is the great equalizer. We all fall short of the glory of God. And justification, beloved, is a matter of God's mercy, not a matter of human merit. Within a week, there's a wee little man who's going to end up in a tree, who's a tax collector, a sinner. And he's going to be struggling to see Jesus. Why? Maybe because he heard about stories like this. Where can a tax collector, where can a sinner like me find peace? How does he hear about this story? Does he know about the one who gives mercy to the tax collector, the one who forgives, the one who is propitious towards tax collectors or sinners? He's heard of one who can make the foulest clean and he wants to go to him. That's the aroma of Jesus. Where is one like that? Where is one who can forgive my sins, whatever they are? And they are many. And they are legion. Sinclair Ferguson, in talking, I, I don't remember whether it's about this passage or another parable in Luke, said, Have we gotten so used to grace that we call it ho hum grace, or expected grace, or deserved grace, or boring grace? It's amazing grace, isn't it? It's amazing grace that God would save a wretch like me. And he does. And he does wholeheartedly and holistically. And those who are touched by that kind of grace and those who are touched by that kind of mercy, it hopefully cannot but overflow in our life and in our love and our service to one another. We are thankful that God is merciful to us and is in that mercy and in that freedom and in that love and in that assurance and in that substitutionary propitious sacrifice for us and in us that we go forward And hopefully, beloved, again, that aroma of mercy is all about us in terms of our speech, in terms of our thought, in terms of our conduct, in terms of our ministry. And when we don't, when we fall short, let's not hide it and pretend we don't. Let's confess those things to the Lord and let's seek to reconcile and make peace with one another as well and be peacemakers and mercy showers. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that though we deserved your wrath and your condemnation, that you have been propitious towards us. You have been mercy, merciful to us. You have sent your own son, Jesus Christ, to endure the just condemnation and the just wrath that should have been poured out upon us. And instead of wrath, we have been given pardon. In the place of fear, we have been given hope. In the place of death, we have been given life. Father, I pray that in my life and in the lives of these students that the aroma of mercy would pervade us in our conduct, in our speech, in our actions, in our teaching. I pray that you would continue to root out from us our stubbornness and our pride and our self-righteousness and our contempt for others. And may we recognize that we are more like one another than we are like Christ. And may our lives be about pointing others to Christ and fleeing to him ourselves in faith. And may you manifest the fruits of that faith in our lives and our love towards one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Copyright 2020, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.